Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. ...in this room have misunderstood this story. You see uh, people talk about somebody who pulls over and helps a stranded motorist and they are a good Samaritan or uh, you take your friends or family or whatever to the good Samaritan hospital when they are sick. It's something that we use in culture, but again, it's been widely misunderstood and because it's been misunderstood, weaponized and the gospel itself has been compromised because of the way we've misunderstood the story. So even if you are familiar with this parable that Jesus tells, this story, I would beg you to track with me this morning and see this parable in a new and fresh way through new eyes because, again, I promise there's people in this room who have been misinterpreting it for a very long time. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Uh, That's, again, that's not me. That's another Luke from 2,000 years ago, okay? Somebody else. Four biographies of the life of Jesus in the New Testament. They're called Gospels. They're biographies of the life of Jesus with a purpose. Uh, Matthew writes one. Mark, a guy named John, wrote one when he was in his 80s. And this is Luke. He's a physician, uh, a researcher, very meticulous. And so he provides us some detail in this story that's really quite incredible. We're going to read the entire story uh, together. I'll read it to you. You track along. It's up here on the screen. Then we're going to make some comments about it and, and apply it. So Luke writes this. He says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he saw him, came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Let's understand what's happening in this story. The first thing is a lawyer stands up. Now, this is not an attorney at law, okay? This is a lawyer. This is an expert in the Old Testament law. He's likely a member of the Pharisee party. He is a religious professional, He gets paid money. It's his job to be a religious professional. This is Wes, okay? Pastor Wes. This is who this man is. But but back then, you know, Wes and Jesus have a really good relationship, okay? But religious professionals back then didn't have a great relationship with Jesus. They were hypocrites for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part. 
And they asked Jesus these questions in order to put him to the test. So Luke tells us that the intention behind this question is to put Jesus to the test. And the lawyer says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks a very typical rabbinic question back to this other rabbi. He says, how do you read the law? What do you see in it? This was a way that rabbis back then, teachers of the Old Testament law, would have these conversations together. And the lawyer answers, or this religious professional answers, with what's called the Shema. It was a very, very familiar phrase that every Jewish man each morning would get up, step across the threshold of his home, raise his arms up and go, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. It's the Shema. It would have been very, very familiar to all of those who were listening to this conversation. And this religious professional adds a little something for good measure, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. That word in the uh, Greek, in the original Greek, is you have answered orthos. It's where we get our phrase, or our word, orthodoxy. Your thinking is right. What you've said is correct. How many of you know that what you say and what you think might be correct, but the way your heart and the way your life shows up might be a little bit left of center? This is what's happening with this religious professional. And he wants to justify himself. He says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he, expect, he expects maybe that Jesus would, hmm, he expects maybe that Jesus would say, those who live within proximity to you, right? Or those who are also Jewish like you are. But Jesus, instead of doing that, tells a story. And the story starts this way. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you look at a map, you would see that Jericho lies north of Jerusalem. And a lot of times people would say, oh yeah, well, this is why the Bible is wrong, right? He's not going down to Jericho because Jericho lies north of Jerusalem. You would have to go up to Jericho. Jerusalem sits up on a hill. Jericho is lower. You go down to Jericho. And that path from Jerusalem to Jericho was often called back then the path of death. Sounds happy, doesn't it? <laughs> the path of death. It was 18 miles long. You descended over a half mile in elevation on that pathway. It was the most dangerous path in all of first century Palestine. It would be like if I started a story this way. I was hanging out at 2 o'clock in the morning at 2nd Ave in Van Buren last night. You guys would go, oh, wow. We know what's coming, don't we? So when Jesus says a man was, the man was beaten, stripped, everything was taken from him, and he was left for dead, his listeners would have gone, no duh. <laughs> He's on the path of death. We knew that this was coming. And Jesus says, a Levite passes by. Now this is interesting because this Levite is also a religious professional. This, or this lawyer who's asked this question, this religious professional, would have had a lot of Levite friends. He may have even been a Levite himself. And rather than rendering aid to this man who's been left for dead, the Levite passes by on the other side. A priest does the very same thing, also a religious professional, passes by on the other side and does not render aid. And this is very, very interesting, and here's why. This is not Scottsdale Road, okay, where they pass by on the other side and see a man left for dead and go, bummer, 
or as we would say in Canada, bummer, eh? Right, this is Canadian, I know. This path is very, very thin, so this is how they pass by on the other side. I mean, they're within arm's reach of this man. You might wonder, why did they not render aid? Well, here's the deal. They're on a path to and from Jerusalem as well. And if they're headed to Jerusalem, within seven days uh, prior to getting to Jerusalem to perform their religious duties, or seven days after leaving Jerusalem, if they touch something that's dead, they have to go and cleanse themselves and go through multiple days of hand washing and all this religious and ritual stuff. And so listen to me, rather than rendering aid to a man who's been beaten and left for dead, their religiosity gets in the way. Are you tracking with me? If I touch him and help, and it just so happens that he's dead, I've got to go through all this ritual cleansing, so I don't want to risk it. That's a lot for me to go through. Jesus says, a priest passes by on the other side. A Levite passes by on the other side. Now, You've heard modern jokes that kind of go this way, like Taylor Swift, Madonna, and Donald Trump walk into a bar, you know what I mean? And you know that the, that the punchline of the joke is going to be Donald Trump, because it's always the third guy, right? I'm not picking Donald Trump. It could be Donald Trump, Madonna, and Taylor Swift walking to the bar. Taylor Swift is the punchline of the joke. I'm not picking on any of those people. I'm just saying that third person is always the key to the story, right? Same way in first century Palestine. So those who are listening to this story are thinking, this third person that comes along, who might it be? By this time in Israel, what has risen up is called this messianic expectation. They're waiting on this chosen one from God to come and redeem the nation of Israel and free them from Roman rule. So maybe it's even the Messiah himself that's coming as the third person in the story. And Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And there would have been an audible gasp from his listeners. People would have maybe even lost their lunch, literally, when he said Samaritan. How many of you have heard before that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along? They hated each other. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Cool. If you've not heard that before, that's okay. I want you to know why Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, okay? Let's track back to the 9th century BC. Mm. David, as king in Israel, had united what were 12 loosely affiliated nomadic tribes and he had united them into a common Israel and established a capital in Jerusalem. He had handed off the building of the temple to his son Solomon and Israel had expanded its territory and expanded its footprint and expanded its financial wealth and expanded in so many ways under King David. But King David made some difficult decisions, made some poor decisions in his life, and passed down to the next generation some of the consequences of those decisions. So what were once 12 unified tribes began to break apart again. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south, stayed faithful to God's covenant. The southern kingdom stayed faithful to the spiritual covenant that they had made with Yahweh. The ten tribes in the north started inviting other nations and other gods in 
so they could worship them. So rather than worshiping Yahweh and Yahweh alone, they began to worship all of these pagan gods. They began to intermarry. They began to invite other nations in. And they established their own capital, as a matter of fact, in the north. When God sent the Assyrian Empire in, in the 8th century, to get these guys' attention, they began to invade the 10 tribes in the north as a disciplinary measure on God's part. They began to invade the 10 tribes in the north. This is how far they had strayed from God's covenant. The Assyrians came to knock on the door of the 10 tribes in the north, and they are coming in to invade and kill and plunder. And you know what the 10 tribes in the north went? Y'all come on in. You got gods? We got a lot of them. Y'all come on in. The capital that they had established for themselves was at a city called Samaria. And they were so much not Jewish anymore that the two tribes in the south called them Samaritans. It would not be an overstatement to say that Jews felt that Samaritans were half-breed, bastard traitors. I understand that that's aggressive language for a Sunday morning. (laughs) But I want you to feel what these Jews who were listening would have felt. They were disgusting. They had compromised the spiritual integrity of the covenant with Yahweh. They had compromised our national security. They invited nations who were invading us to come in and just hang out and marry our women and eat our food. In in that day and age, if you were traveling and you were a Jew and you had to travel through the place where Samaritans would live, you would take the long way around and add two, three days onto your journey because you don't even want to go through where they live. So when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, you would have heard a, (gasps) and they would have shuddered. And the Samaritan saw him. This is the critical verse. Listen. First thing happens. Samaritan sees this man. Second, he came to where he was. Third, he had compassion on him. We're going to revisit that verse here in a minute, so remember. He saw him. He came to where he was, and he had compassion He picks this man up and he puts them on his own donkey. That means the Samaritan is now doing what? Walking. He uses his own oil and wine to bind up this man's wounds. He's now sacrificed for him. He's also put himself at risk, hasn't he? Because now he's not on a donkey anymore. He's going a little slower on this path of death. He brings him to an inn. He gives this man in advance three months of room and board. And says, and if he needs anything else, when I come back, you let me know and I'll pay the balance. Then he looks at this lawyer, this religious professional, and he asks him a very easy question. Ready? You're going to answer it. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, was a good neighbor? That's an easy question, isn't it? I'm going to have you answer on three. Which of those three was a good neighbor? One, two, three. Did you see how this lawyer, this religious professional answered? He said, the one who showed mercy. Do you know why he answered that way? 
because the word Samaritan feels like poison in his mouth. He can't even say it out loud. And Jesus, rather than undressing this man publicly in front of everybody, rather than humiliating him, he looks at him and he says, now you go and do likewise. Gentle Jesus, helping this man learn a little something about himself. Now here is where we've misinterpreted the story. We look at the story and we say, I need to be a good Samaritan, right? When there's a stranded motorist on the side of the road, when there's a kid in my class eating lunch by himself, when there's a coworker who's really struggling, when there's someone who doesn't have enough money, I need to go to them, see them, and have compassion on them. That's what this story is about. It's about teaching me how to live as a Christian. That is 100% not what the story's about. You know how I know that? Because remember the question that the lawyer asked. Do you remember it? How do I inherit eternal life? This is not a story about how to live as a Christian. The lawyer would have asked, how do I live as a follower of Yahweh? What should I be doing? That would have been the question. That was not the question. This is a question about eternal destination. Men and women of God, here's the first main point in my sermon this morning. Ready? You are not the good Samaritan. I want you to say that with me. Say, I am not the good Samaritan. This is the point of the passage. You need a good Samaritan. You and I, men and women of God, are the man beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. Spiritually speaking, we had nothing to give. And listen closely, religion had failed us over and over again. The priest passes him by and leaves him for dead. The Levite passes him by and leaves him for dead. Your behavior modification, the gospel of behavior modification of, I just need to do all the things that God would have me do. I need to go to church. I need to be kind to others. I need to obey most of the Ten Commandments. And then somehow, I'll get into the kingdom. That gospel left you for dead on the side of the road. But the unlikely hero, a carpenter from Nazareth, saw you <laughs> and came 2,000 years ago near to you and had compassion on you and put you on his own animal and paid a debt that you could not pay. Men and women, you are not the good Samaritan. You need a good Samaritan. Parents, this is a little bit of an aside. Parents, we say this all the time. Like, my kid went off to college, and day one, their professor was like, there is no God, evolution's a thing, and, you know, Big Bang Theory and the whole deal, and now my kid has totally left the faith. And it's all that professor's fault. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because we use stories like this to tell our kids, behave. Behave like a good Samaritan. Go be a good Samaritan. 
and we miscommunicate the gospel. Do you see the misinterpretation here? Do you see how we've weaponized it now and used it to say, live up to God's standards by being a good Samaritan? Men and women of God, you are the man on the side of the road. This is not a gospel of behavior modification. This is a gospel where an unlikely hero comes near to you in your time of most dire need. This is the extraordinary nature of a word called grace. When you had nothing to give and nowhere to go, when you had no money, when you were spiritually dead, Jesus came and gave all to you. Now, this is why that's so critical. Because now, rather than being compelled as Christians to be a good Samaritan, to live a life of grace to others because I need to live up to God's standards, here's why we are compelled. Because God has already paid the debt for us. We live up to his standard because Jesus paid it for us. Are you tracking with me? This, this kind of linear nature of, of, of what, uh, what living as a Christian means, it happens all over the scripture. Forgive one another just as what? God in Christ forgave you. Be a minister and a messenger of reconciliation. Why? Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We're going to sing a song at the end of this thing called First Things First. We talk about putting first things first. We have to put first things first. Before we talk about the ways in which we engage with the world and living a life of grace to others and being a good Samaritan, we got to say, I need a good Samaritan. That's the first step. And if we don't, one of my favorite theologians says it this way. Here's how life works. You put first things first, you get second things thrown in. You put second things first, you lose second things and first things in the process. The first thing first is saying, I need a good Samaritan. I need somebody to come to me, and Jesus and Jesus alone can do that. Now, let's talk about the ways in which Jesus treated us and then the ways in which he calls us to treat others because of what he has done. Here's the first point. Look up here on the screen. That grace is sacrificial. The Samaritan for this man gave up his own reputation. He gave up his own money. He gave up his own animal. He gave up his own oil and wine. Just as Jesus gave up heaven to come to you. He gave up his very life. He paid the greatest price. Forgiveness always costs somebody something. It's an extraordinary sacrifice that this Samaritan makes. And now, because Jesus has done that for us, we can sacrifice for others. This is why we're called to live a life of sacrifice as Christians in the world. Because that word Christian just means little Christ. Because God in Christ forgave you. Because God in Christ sacrificed for you. You are called to sacrifice for others. What is it that's preventing you from living a life of grace to someone in your life right now? Is it your money? Is it your time? It's my time. I don't like giving up my time. I give up money. I don't like giving up time. 
Is it your reputation? Is that what you're holding on to? Is it your career trajectory? Is it what people think about you? See, Jesus gave up all those things for you. And now that can and does compel us because we're loved more than we could ever imagine to live a life of sacrifice in the world. Number two, grace is empathetic. I love the fact that this Samaritan first sees this man and then comes to him and has compassion on him. Do you remember we talked about that verse a minute ago? That word compassion is a deep in your gut. There's like a, there's something that happens deep inside of him physically. And he's showing compassion to this man. Rather than his religiosity getting in the way, the Samaritan sees and goes to him and has compassion. Men and women of God, I, I, um, I would prefer not to tell the story about myself that I'm about to tell to you. So I would love it if you didn't judge me. Mm. A number of years ago, I was a pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church just right up the road. We started a little um, kind of video venue. So uh, it was a room about this size, and we would do live music and live you know, pastoral announcements and pastoral care and thing. And then we would pipe the message in via video. And I remember about 10 minutes into the sermon, there was a, a, a mom and a little boy uh, sitting behind me and my wife and Jim, actually, who's in the room, um, sitting behind us. And this little boy was maybe three, and he's yapping. He's just talking. He's running up and down the aisle. And I don't, pastor was talking about something like, about compassion or something stupid. I don't know what it was, but he was distracting <laughs> me. And I knew he was distracting others, right? And I'm the pastor in this room, and so I feel compelled to do something about this because he's distracting other people from listening to the message. So I lean back to the gal and I say, hey, I just want you to know we do have a children's ministry. We'd be happy to care for your son um, in the children's ministry because it seems like he's having a difficult time tracking. And so am I. <laughs> she said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So she, she picks him up. She goes to the back of the room. So she's standing now in the back of the room and this little boy won't shut up. Just he's talking, he's running back and forth, talking, running back and forth. So now I'm not suggesting that you take your kid to the children's ministry. You know what I mean? Now this is a tell. So I walk back and I say, hey, listen, I'm the pastor in here. He's really distracting. Would you, and I get about that far into the question, this little boy reaches his hands up and asks me to pick him up. And I don't like kids. So that was. <laughs> so I pick this little boy up and he puts his head on my shoulder and he's out like that. Just gone. <clears throat> gone. So at this point, I start to figure out, like, I'm pretty dull, you know, I'm pretty dim. I figure out something's going on. I say to this mom, I say, hey, what's up? What's going on here with, with this kiddo that he just passed out in a stranger's arms? You know, that's weird. I said, well, um, his dad is an addict, and he only comes home uh, once every three or four months or so. And he'll come home just for a night, and he'll eat, and, and then he'll go back out and do his thing, and we see him three or four months later. So uh, when he's home, I let my son stay up as long as he can just to be around his dad. So he's, he's just gassed, physically and emotionally. So I said, I, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Could you take him to the children's ministry? Please? No, that's, I didn't, that's not what I said. I said, I said. Friends, do you see how being a religious professional got in the way of showing compassion? Do you see it? 
You see, we ain't changed all that much. Men and women of God, the LGBTQ community needs you to see them and go to them and show compassion on them and not let your religiosity get in the way. You do not have to compromise your values. You hear me? You hear that? But here's what we're, here's what we're doing. Oh, I have this value. I have this biblical worldview, so I'm going to pass by on the other side of the road. Your religiosity gets in the way. You've got to see the world from their perspective. That's what empathetic means. It means walking a mile in somebody else's shoes. It means understanding the plight that they're going through. It means starting with knowing you needed a good Samaritan just as bad as they did. Number three, and we'll wrap up with this. Living a life of grace. It's impartial. I love the reason that Jesus, or the the fact that Jesus uh, uses a Samaritan, <laughs> a Samaritan. He's teaching these folks. He's teaching these religious leaders about what God's grace truly is. It's poured out for all mankind. Whether, whether you feel like they're a half-breed traitor or not. I know that there are people in your life, again, part of a particular community, somebody who voted for somebody else than you did. Somebody just snickered in the room. They're like, yeah, that's me. I got what I needed to apply. I can go home now, right? Our religiosity continues to get in the way of extending grace to others. I'm not talking about a worldview. I'm not talking about compromising convictions. I'm talking about first understanding that you were beaten and left for dead on the side of the road spiritually and Jesus came to you and saw you and had compassion on you and he calls you to do the same to each and every person in your life regardless of their background, regardless of their gender, whether it's changed or not regardless of their particular persuasion or sexual identity, regardless of who they voted for. Men and women of God, I I can almost sense that there's a name going through your head right now. You know who this person is in your life. And if you start with first things first, And understand that Jesus came to you. And this is not a story about how to modify your behavior in order to impress God by how good a Samaritan you really are. Do you see the oxymoron, by the way? That's not what this story is about. It's about being compelled to pour grace upon grace upon grace onto others because God in Christ poured grace upon grace upon grace to you. Let's pray. God, teach us to put first things first. Teach us that this good news about Jesus is not that he came to have a model, so that we could have a model of how to live well enough to impress God. (laughs) He came to be impartial. He came to be wildly sacrificial 
He came to be a high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. Show empathy. And once we get that, once we understand that, once we sit in that, God, would you send us as messengers of reconciliation into your world to pour impartial, sacrificial, and empathetic grace onto others. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Uh, somebody in your life this week uh, needs to know about the good news that uh, they don't have to be a good Samaritan. They just need to say yes to the one who came to them and saw them and had compassion on them. Demonstrate that good news this week in how you live, showing impartial, sacrificial, and empathetic grace, knowing most of all, first of all, that you were the man left beaten and dead on the side of the road until Jesus saw you and came to you and had compassion on you. There's prayer partners in the back. You can submit prayer requests in the back as well. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. And uh, we'll hopefully see you next week. Bring somebody along with you. Sound good? Y'all have a great week. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.